Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. Season five is upon us. Yeah, I am. You know, there aren't really seasons. Usually if something has seasons, it's because things happen. You know, there's a story arc that closes or B plot that goes awry or there's twists, you know, kind of at the end of last season. New characters are introduced. We don't do anything like that here. Everything is pretty much the same. You know, the format has been pretty much carved in stone for quite a while now, which is good because I have a guest on today that uh, was one of the first guests I had on and was the first guest that I asked to come on the show who I did not already know. And that's from Vanity Fair. Catherine Eban, who wrote that wonderful piece in 2020 about Jared Kushner and the COVID shadow task force, which I've written about extensively in the uh, bunch of years since. I call it the blue state genocide. She doesn't. But uh, that's my term, not hers. But her work is super important. And she's continued to cover Kushner and COVID and all the kind of medical stuff, which is not something I know all that much about. So I wanted to have her on and just kind of get an update on where we are with, the, you know, with COVID-19, with uh, variants, with vaccines and all that kind of stuff. So um, very grateful to her for coming on and uh, classing up the joint here at Prevail. Uh, as you know, I have been on vacation. I haven't been on vacation. I've been on hiatus. For three Fridays in a row, I was not doing new shows because, you know, I had a little mission. I was um, I was traveling across the United States in a balloon, high up in the sky, and then the fucking thing got shot down. It was unbelievable. I'm just kidding, obviously. No, uh, I was in Berlin. You know, I, I went to Berlin for work um, in the middle of the that two-week period of time, and uh, it was really great. 
man. It was great to be in Berlin. It was great to be in Germany. It was great to not be in the United States and talk to people from different countries to see, you know, what's going on in Europe, how things are in, in Poland, in Czech Republic, in, in Germany, and, you know, Ukraine. I met, met with some people from Ukraine. Um, guy from Dnipro gave me some <laughs> t-shirts from Ukraine, which is awesome. And it's, you know, it, it was interesting to see. It was kind of a breath of fresh air. I wrote about it on Prevail when I was in Berlin. I visited the, the Holocaust Memorial, which is technically the, the real title is the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe. And I wrote about this uh, on my Substack. But what's beautiful about the memorial is that it's right in the middle of everything. It's, it's like just on this city block, just kind of baked into everything else. You know, it's near the Brandenburg Gates. It's near the Reichstag building. It's near the American embassy. And you're just sort of walking and then suddenly it's upon you. And it's rows and rows of um, concrete slabs. And some of the concrete slabs on the outskirts of this thing are kind of, you know, maybe they're like two feet tall, three feet tall. And as you walk through this warren of uh, slabs, they get taller and taller. And suddenly you're like, wait a minute, how the hell did that happen? Which is kind of like what happens with Nazis, you know? You don't realize what's happening and then suddenly you're in it and you can't get out. And the effect, because the slabs are not all the same size, some of them are a little bit askew. The, uh, the pathways um, are not on flat ground. They keep the contour of the ground, so it's a little bit uneven. And it's a very, very disorienting effect. It's, it's impossible to visit that and not come away moved by it. And I think that putting it right in the middle of everything sort of exemplifies what Germany has tried to do to atone for its you know, national sin, which was the Holocaust, the Third Reich, Hitler, the Nazis, all of it. Nothing can ever fully atoned for it. But as I wrote in the piece, acknowledgement is the first part of atonement. And that's a lesson I think that we here in the United States need to learn. We also have our sins. You know, we have the sins of, of genocide, which is what I would call it, when uh, Europeans came here and basically displaced the indigenous population, killed a lot of people, displaced a lot of others. And slavery, you know, where we imported people from Africa to come here and, and, and do work. And it's uh, even to talk about, you know, it, it really just boggles the mind that anybody thought this was an okay thing to do, but they did it. And, you know, our country became wealthy on the backs of slave labor, which is a horrible, horrible thing. And we've never really atoned for it. We've never really come close. And here we are, it's February, it's Black History Month. You know, it's the one month of the year that we're sort of collectively as a nation sort of acknowledge it, but, um, you know, we really have failed, I think, as a as a nation to address the sins of the past. And this is just something that keeps hitting us over and over again, and it's going to keep doing so because we fail constantly to go back, review what's happened, and atone for our sins and try to re redress problems that crop up. We just turn the page and hope that everybody forgets. We've been doing this for centuries, probably going to keep doing it. Uh, and I wish that... Uh, People would learn something from, you know, what I saw in Berlin and how and how the Germans have gone about recovering their identity uh, after, you know, the, the, the horrors of World War II and the Third Reich. You know, how do you recover from something like that, from from having perpetuated such evil upon the, the world? There's no easy answer, but what they're doing is a lot better than what we've been doing here. The net result of that is that we have got Nazis, man. I, I don't know. I go away for three weeks. I feel like there's Nazis everywhere now. 
There's Nazis in Ohio. I don't know if you saw the story where there's, you know, there's Nazis in Ohio, homeschooled Nazis. And reading the Hitler stuff, trying to, uh, you know, whitewash his horrible crimes. We've got Nazis on Twitter. Elon Musk let all the Nazis back on. All the fascists, all the Nazis. They're not only are they on, they're given some sort of preference, is what we're learning from his stupid Twitter files thing. It's, it, you know, it's like he wants everybody to read this this shit. And we've got people uh, in our midst on Twitter, you know, in the extended uh, universe of of people that we read spouting Nazi propaganda and uh, going into Twitter spaces and and uh, you know denying Holocaust numbers and stuff like that. This is something that's happening now in 2023. In the United States. And I will argue that the reason why this is happening now, aside from the internet, is because we have not atoned for our sins, for the sins of our past. We we let bad things happen and we let the perpetrators get away with it for the most part. You know, what happened to the Civil War? People got away with it. There wasn't like some big thing after that. People moved on. They left the country. They retired. You know, only the, the, the poor people who were fighting the war really uh, suffered, you know, on both sides, the, the, the leaders, the Confederacy, it's fine, you know, and, and, and on and on it goes up until this week, we've got Matt Gates, you know, Matt Gates, who burst into the skiff a couple of years ago, should have been arrested for that. Wasn't. And now they're not going to, you know, the DOJ is not going to press charges on this, uh, sex trafficking investigation, which I understand, you know, I get it. It's, it's a, it's a weak case. It's a hard case to, to win in court. They didn't have the witness, whatever. But, you know, the guy did this thing pretty much. And, um, you know, the evidence that I read is pretty compelling. And the DOJ is like, nah, we're not going to do that. I know there's reasons, but when this shit happens over and over, when Donald Trump still has not been indicted, when Jared Kushner still has not been indicted, when Mike Flynn still been indicted, just he's just online trying to organize a second coup. Steve Bannon got convicted. He's not in jail yet. When this shit happens, it just feels like nothing is happening, that there is no justice, and that the U.S. is going to keep doing the same damn thing we've always done, which is turn the page, hope nobody notices. Hey, look up in the sky, it's a balloon, you know? Let's look at that instead of all the bad shit that's happening. Anyway, I don't want to get dark here at the beginning of the show, but that's where my head's at. And uh, it's it's on Berlin, where I went. And again, if you haven't been to Berlin, Berlin's a fantastic city, really great. Really fun, great vibe, artsy, cool people, good food, great beer, big art scene. It's just really cool. Great energy in that city. I had Berlin on my mind, but thinking about Nazis because of, you know, there's just a lot of Nazis in our midst suddenly. And uh, and then, you know, UFOs. So I don't know what's up with the UFOs. Maybe they can pick up Elon Musk and bring him to Mars. I don't know. That would be nice. Anyway, Okay. I talked a little bit longer than I would like to, which I think I say that at the end of every introduction here, but I really did go on a little bit longer than I normally do because, hey, I haven't had a chance to talk to you for three weeks, four weeks, really, I guess. I don't know. I always lose the math. But yeah, I guess it's been four weeks since since the last live uh, broadcast here. So uh, yeah, it's been a while. I had some things I wanted off my chest. So again, I want to thank you for uh, supporting this show. If you want to support me more, please go subscribe to my Substack which is just uh, gregolier.substack.com. You can sign up there for, you know, it's $5 a month, $50 for the year. Everything that uh, that I make there subsidizes this podcast. 
And uh, it's all kind of part and parcel of the same thing, which is me doing research and writing and, um, you know, just trying to call out all the, all the fuckery. That's what we do. And if you already subscribe, hey, thanks for subscribing. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. I appreciate the goodness in the world. And, you know, for all the badness, for all the bad guys, for all the Nazis and all the fuckery, I still believe, and I will, I will die on this hill, there's a lot more good people than bad people. And that goodness and lightness shall prevail. We'll be right back with Catherine Eban. Crooked Scotus, crooked Fotus, crooked Giuliani too. On a mission for sedition, MAGA tried to stage a coup. Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, is it time? An indictment for incitement, charge the traitors with a crime. Trump is gloating and showboating, there for all the world to see. Flynn and Bannon, Alien Cannon, Roger Stone is walking free. Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, it's a crime, but the AG is so cagey, hope Jack Smith keeps better time. Catherine Eban, welcome back to Prevail. Thanks so much for having me. You, um, I looked in the archives, you appeared on the show on March 18th, 2021, which is now almost two years ago somehow and i you're the first person that i didn't know that i asked and the person that i wanted the most to have on because of the reporting you did around around kushner who's been my bugbear for many many years now like a, a, an insane amount of years so i was grateful you, for you uh, at the time to come on and i'm i'm even happier that you've come back because uh i've got this figured out a little more now i've got um you know i have my office in my house that i'm using i have a different microphone you know, lots of things. Green room with drinks in it. No, I don't have any of that stuff. So um, now you're a, a the contributing editor at Vanity Fair, and you're on the beat. The beat is described as medical and scientific mayhem, which I think right. is wonderful. And you've covered extensively the government and COVID and the response and and all that kind of stuff. You broke this this story in July of 2020 about Jared Kushner and his shadow group that was trying to figure out a plan for the pandemic, which I thought at the time and still think is is a tremendous story of vast social importance and not, you know, just underrated in the grand scheme of things. I think you know, it it was briefly on a billboard in New York City, and it should, you know, in Times Square, and it should remain there because uh, this guy really infuriates me. So I want to talk about all of this stuff. Before we get there, you wrote another book in, in 2019, which I'm, I'm doing the research, and we didn't talk about that last time. Uh, so I want to talk about it uh, just for a minute this time. It's called Bottle of Lies, in the inside story of the generic drug boom. And I'm looking at this thing and it's terrifying me because I have, you know, I have prescriptions all over here and they're all generic prescriptions and uh, and stuff like that. So it seems like from the reporting initially that, you know, we're, we're told that uh, these things are these drugs are basically the same exact thing. 
And yet maybe they're kind of like not the same exact thing. It's like you ask for Oreos and you get Hydrox. So um, talk a little bit about that book. Yeah. So uh, thank you for asking about that. Um, Mm -hmm. I first started reporting on the generic drug industry in 2008. I got a call actually from a NPR radio show host named Joe Graydon, who was familiar with my work. Uh, And he said, I'm getting flooded with calls from people whose generics are not working effectively. Uh, They're having side effects. He said he had he's a he's a trained pharmacologist. Uh, He said he found all these accounts credible. He had taken these complaints to the FDA and the officials there had said, well, it's psychosomatic because if people are on a brand and they get switched to a generic, the pills look different and, you know, patients respond accordingly. And then he posed this question to me, what is wrong with the drugs? And I was like, well, that is certainly an interesting question. How, I don't know how hard that would be to figure out. So I started reporting and I did a story, uh, it it was in Self Magazine at the time. And it was about a lot of patients who had suffered these medical odysseys from being switched and didn't realize it. A lot of doctors asking questions, but it was about a month after that story ran and I was contacted by a whistleblower from the generic drug industry who called himself $4 refill, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is what you'd pay, you know, at a, at a uh, Walmart if you were going to go and refill a prescription for a generic. And he said, basically, if you uh, want to figure out what is wrong with the drugs, you have to look at where they're being made. And he was pointing me to India and China. And basically, I spent the next 10 years reporting on uh, manufacturing plants in India and China, trying to answer Joe Graydon's initial question, what is wrong with the drugs? That led me to really a big expose in Fortune magazine, where I was a contributor for eight years, about a big Indian drug company called Rambaxi, which had committed massive fraud. And then for the next five years, I was reporting Bottle of Lies. And what I was able to piece together is that many of the overseas generic drug plants that Americans rely on for low-cost medicine routinely alter and falsify their quality data in order to get approvals from foreign regulators. What that means, I mean, the implications are really tremendous, which is that the drugs that are on the market in the U.S. uh, may be approved based on falsified data, data that says that they are bioequivalent, that they are safe, that they are stable. And that that really kind of opened my eyes to, um, you know, just this tremendous problem, which is that you may have standards or regulations on paper, and we may think that everybody follows them equally, and that is not always true. So that was a real reporting odyssey. Wow, that's intense. And we know from, you know, during the pandemic that, you know, drugs are still being uh, manufactured in India and China and coming because there was a shortage of them at the time. And so is it, 
they're falsifying the data. Is it just, was it just shoddy mixing the chemicals or like in Breaking Bad when they go to Mexico and they're inspecting the plant and they're like, it's too, you know, it's not, it's too dirty or like, to me, some of this stuff is almost magical. It's like, here's a bottle of pills and there's a thing in it. Oh, it's this. I don't know what's, you know, I have no idea what, how they do any of this stuff. So is it just laziness that they're doing it wrong or, or costs? Like, what did you find? Oh, no, this is, this is specifically for a profit motive. So that it basically costs more to be compliant with, for example, FDA regulations, you know, which specify basically what safe manufacturing is, what what um, appropriate manufacturing is. I mean, there are all kinds of shortcuts and falsifications, everything from claiming that you've done microbial testing and that there's no bacteria in your plant. And in fact, you haven't done that testing and you've altered the data to claim you have, taking low cost excipients and other ingredients and substituting it for higher cost ingredients. Um, you know, as somebody basically put it to me, if you walk into, let's say, Old Navy and you buy a, a pair of pants and they cost very little. Yeah. Um, we as consumers, as Western consumers, understand the bargain that we're making, which is not ideal. We understand that these were probably made in a sweatshop somewhere uh, in a developing country where workers are not treated well, where they may use low quality fabrics and other shortcuts. Well, you know, that is essentially what's happening with our pharmaceuticals, which is that they are made in pharmaceutical sweatshops overseas. And, you know, you don't have to take my word for it because this is uh, documented in great detail in FDA inspection reports, which I read hundreds of. Uh, so, you know, the inspectors our inspectors were going overseas to inspect these plants, but what were they doing? They were announcing their visits uh, months in advance. Yeah. So, so really what I was able to expose in Bottle of Lies is an entire system of sort of fraud, shortcuts, and failed regulation that leads us as Americans to be getting substandard, low-cost pharmaceuticals. Well, so it's like the old Navy of, I don't even, I don't want to disparage old Navy because I think actually right. probably the clothes are better than, or more similar than the, right. than the drugs. So has anything changed in the last four years since your book came out or is this still a huge problem? Well, when my book came out, um, there were a number of congressional hearings and I was optimistic that things were beginning to turn around. I mean, what I saw was an effort by the private sector to move manufacturing back to the U.S. And okay. let me tell you, the closer you are to FDA headquarters, it's likely the more compliant you're going to be. So that seemed very promising. It also seemed that the FDA was uh, making some reforms, such as not announcing their visits in advance, uh, making their own travel plans. I mean, they had inspectors who were getting booked into hotels by the very far, uh, you know, yeah. manufacturing plants that they were inspecting. But then COVID hit. And really, all the efforts at reform pretty much went out the window as we were all struggling to survive. I mean, every country sort of turned 
nativist as far as their own drug supplies went. We were facing immense shortages. The FDA canceled its overseas inspections. And I really look at COVID as having put a sort of red flashing light over this problem that I illustrated, right? Because if you are not in control of the manufacture of your own drugs, of your own life-saving drugs, and you're in a global crisis, it is each country to their own. I mean, and we really saw that, you know, India uh, restricted exports, right? I mean, it is amazing that the whole system did not completely collapse, um, but it certainly illustrated some of the problems. Yeah, and something like that makes more sense, I think, to be closer than than farther away. I mean, if we don't have Old Navy, then, you know, we'll just go thrifting, but you can't right. thrift for drug, for prescription no. drugs. No. Um, now, you, you, you had a very good segue there into the COVID, so uh, let, let's go with that. You've written extensively about this. I want to ask a couple of remedial questions because I, I've spent the last. Uh, we're recording this. It's it's January twenty eighth on on Saturday afternoon. This past week, I wrote on my Substack a piece called "The Plague Turns Three, which is actually it's 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 not a birthday, but it's three years of plague basically because it was um, three years ago that the second uh, confirmed case in the United States hit in Illinois. So there was one in Washington state and one in Illinois. And then everybody sort of knew, oh, oh shit, you know, we're we're in the we're in this now. And it was remarkable to kind of go back through the timeline, including your your work was part of the timeline. But even before that, when um Nancy Massagne was uh, at the CDC, had this briefing with reporters, and you go back and read what she was saying now, and she had she had it nailed. Everything she said happened right down to the, I mean, remarkably so. And as soon as she said that, Trump freaked out and like basically sent her to Siberia, I guess, because we never heard from her again. And he trotted out uh, Burks with her scarf to try to, I guess, distract us like with the Matador scarf or something. And everything turned to shit um, after that uh, to the tune of, you know, a lot more Americans died than should have died. And I was reading a study done by a, some scientist at the University of Connecticut who's basically, and this is just math, I mean, if our response had been, forget about New Zealand, but even as good as South Korea's or Germany's, we would have saved 300,000 lives, which is, um, that feels like a lot to me. And yet nobody seems to care about this at all. It's very strange how, you know, Kushner and Trump and just, they just waltz around like, I'm at the World Cup. You know, we just, you killed, you killed like a million people are dead, dude. Like, what are you doing? Anyway, so I've, been, I've had this on my mind. Um, I want to get a little bit remedial before we go into, into the details. So the names that keep popping up in these things are WHO, which is World Health Organization, the NIH, and then the CDC. So how do these, obviously WHO is international, the other two are, are U.S., but how do these group, how do these organizations like interact? Who's in charge of what? Like who decides who's in, you know, the, the spokesperson for, for all of this stuff? Like how does that work? So the WHO is the, the World Health Organization is the sort of global entity that is, tries to corral uh, its 194 member states different countries that are sort of signatories to the international health regulations and the WHO to cooperate, you know, to do the right thing. Now, you know, the WHO is um, underpowered and underfunded, uh, but it is really sort of when it comes to 
global cooperation, which is critical uh, for pandemic response, it's pretty much the only show in town uh, as far as a global entity sort of keeping the countries of the world in collaboration with one another. And I think that is, it's interesting to note, Greg, that I mean two things for the purposes of this discussion, which is, um, you may recall, um, Donald Trump announced that he was going to pull the U.S. out of the WHO, that it was no longer going to give money and, you know, cooperate, uh, which, you know, public health experts legitimately freaked out. When, when what did he do that before the pandemic? Right. Or no. Oh, no, no, no. He did it in the middle of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, I mean, right. in, I in the middle of his yeah. pandemic response, basically, uh, you know, went sort of nativist and basically said we were going to go it on our own. And, you know, the the collaboration, uh, the global cooperation, it's not just when there is a, you know, hair on fire emergency. It is continuous. It's it's training. It's all kinds of reciprocity, sharing of, you know, genomic data. It's how we get our flu vaccines because we work with other countries to see what kind of strains are coming down the pike. So, you know, basically uh, when it comes to global public health, you know, not being a member of the WHO is like insanity. Uh, and in fact, his own ambassador to the WHO, and I reported on it at the time, recognized it as such and, you know, did his best to negotiate that back, you know, and obviously the Biden administration has totally walked that back. And now uh, where the, um, the U.S. is working, and this was in my most recent piece, is working very hard to try to hammer out a pandemic accord. Um, we've never, the world has never actually had one. And I mean, that is its own uh, intense debate right now. You know, what that pandemic accord is going to say, because as I reported in my most recent piece, there is this divide. The Southern countries um, are really focused on equity, which was a huge issue in the pandemic and still remains that, you know, can they share in intellectual property to develop their own vaccines? Can they make their own vaccines so that, you know, the richer Western countries don't hoover up all the vaccines as we yeah. did in this case? The Northern countries are working very hard at transparency and prompt disclosure of novel pathogens. And of course, one of the things that many people feel set us back in this pandemic was the delay from China in getting the genomic sequence, in yeah. getting critical information, like there is a person-to-person -person transmission, you know, that it looks like there is asymptomatic infection. I mean, these were all giant issues that had tremendous impact on our ability to respond in timely fashion. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question, what's the WHO? Yeah, no, um, it's good. This is good. Yeah. So so um, the CDC, you know, that is that is our print of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and that is our sort of principal and premier agency for responding to uh, disease threats. There has been expressed by many experts 
you know, a feeling that the CDC massively blew it in this um, pandemic. And in fact, the recent C- the, the most, you know, the CDC head under Biden has said that very thing. So there is an effort right now to overhaul the CDC. But the CDC is the entity by which we investigate, uh, you know, uh, infectious disease spread, contaminated lettuce that's out there, um, Legionnaire's disease, um, you know, responding, deploying experts to Uganda for an Ebola outbreak. Um, You know, when it came time for the monkeypox response, the Biden administration took a really excellent um, CDC officer who runs their HIV prevention and helped put him in charge of the national response. So, you know, in an optimal world, when the CDC is functioning, it's really setting, you know, public health guidance for the nation and even the world. Um, So that's the CDC. And then you asked about the National Institutes of Health. Yes. So, you know, when people, I think, think of the National Institutes of Health. They think of a sub-agency, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the NIAID, which was helmed by Fauci for decades. And that is really kind of oversees the nation's biomedical research. Uh, It has a huge budget for funding biomedical research and really sort of influences um, science all over the world in the kind of research that it funds. A lot of acronyms in this reporting. Yeah, Tedi- weird, tedious ones that, that are sort of similar to genomic sequences or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So, um, that was my other uh, sort of remedial question. Um, in, in the research reporting, there's, you know, it's called SARS hyphen C, capital C, lowercase O, capital V hyphen two. Yeah. And then obviously there was a predecessor that was hyphen one. What does that mean exactly? Is it a combination of the coronavirus and the the severe acute respiratory syndrome? Is that what it is or? So SARS, it's a SARS-like virus. So we had SARS-1, which was in, I think, first appeared on the scene in 2002, 2003. And I mean, there was a lot of debate about the naming protocol around SARS-CoV-2, But basically, it is a SARS coronavirus, and it is number two because we had SARS-1. Okay. And is it, it's like two different viruses that are together? Like, is that why the hyphen is there? Or is it just, I'm being too cute with the names and it doesn't Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it is a coronavirus. Yeah. And underneath the blanket of the coronavirus, underneath the umbrella of the coronavirus, you have SARS. Okay. Okay. Um, Because I don't know, you know. It's not the thing that I'm that I'm the specialist right. in. So I'm talking about about Trump before when you when, when he pulls out of of the World Health Organization. It's astonishing to me how these people um, believe that the viruses respect the borders. Like he just wants to build the fucking wall, like it's going to keep out you know immigrants and also the virus, and it just doesn't work that way. Um, I think Kushner made the same mistake. Um, in your reporting with the the idea that that it was just going to sort of confine itself to New York and New Jersey and California, which is just why would anyone with half a brain cell think that? But I guess that I guess they do. Let me say one thing about that, Greg, which is, you know, I think that (laughs) pandemics really pose a problem for autocratic governments. 
mm-hmm. um, and autocratic leaders. I mean, if you want to go it alone, you are not going to have a very good pandemic response. And I think we saw that in the case of Bolsonaro yep. um, in Brazil, and we certainly saw that under Trump. You know, this idea, which is that we're all in it together, you know, that we need uh, we need sort of global regulation and global cooperation, you know, and that it's probably not that helpful as Trump did to, you know, get up and uh, insult the Chinese and try to brand this as a Chinese virus. I mean, obviously, that's a whole different discussion and we don't need to get into it. But, you know, this is not a great way to establish global cooperation, which is critical in responding to a pandemic, which, as you say, respects no borders. Right. Especially, you know, whatever the the origins are, it started off at Wuhan. So insulting the Chinese just makes them less likely to share information, which we all need. So it's it's particularly stupid in that in that aspect. I got a bunch more questions. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Catherine Eben. Okay, we're back with Catherine Eben. So I want to review, uh, we've danced around it a little bit. I want to review the reporting about Kushner because I I just feel like I I personally keep repeating this over and over since I read this the first time because I just think people need to know what a monster and what a ghoul this guy is and and how how much responsibility, in my view, he bears for this. Um, You know, again, virus, the the pandemic was going to come People were going to get sick and die. There's almost nothing that could be done. But the way that they just sabotage the response is is I I I struggle to find anything in recent history that the it 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 just blows my mind. So um, refresh everybody's memory, if you will, about about what Slenderman did. Well, it's interesting. When I first began my reporting on Kushner, I didn't necessarily know that I was reporting on Kushner. I had gotten from a source, I had gotten a very unusual invoice. And this was from a company called Cogna Technology Solutions. Uh, and it was for, um, I believe it was 3.5 million test kits, which were ordered. Uh, and Cogna was a, a, a company that was based in the UAE, United Arab Emirates. Ah. Um and here was this order for 3.5 million test kits. But what was strange about the invoice was the client name on it, which was simply WH, the White House. Yeah. So the White House does not procure supplies in the U.S. government. They don't have a budget for supplies. The U.S. government has a very elaborate um, system for procuring supplies where you have to have a duly contracted uh, officer who signs off on it. But nonetheless, here was this order, which cost millions of dollars for COVID-19 test kits early on in the pandemic. And it turned out those test kits did not work. They were No way. Something from the UAE that scientific doesn't work. I can't even believe it. Wow. (laughs) Knock me over with a feather. Okay. So, but as I began reporting on this invoice, so why is the White House, so this was at the, the test kits were ordered at a time in the pandemic where Trump was sort of saying two different things. 
he was saying, I want to keep the numbers low. I don't want these. I don't want testing because testing is going to tell us that we have tons of cases and it's better not to know. But at the same time, he was also saying anybody who wants a test can get a test. And of course, that was completely untrue. I mean, you have to cast your mind back. I mean, now we can all go to a pharmacy and get a rapid test. You know, but if you cast your mind back to the beginning of the pandemic, where there was such incredible des- desperation to get tested, and the yeah. tests simply were not available, so here was the White House somehow secretly ordering millions of tests. You know, when they don't even have a procurement budget. So, I just wanted to track this invoice, and as I did reporting to try to track that invoice, I basically found myself sort of reporting in Kushner territory Mm. because even though the official pandemic response in those early days was helmed by um, Vice President Pence, Kushner, and this was widely reported at the time, had set up this sort of shadow task force inside the White House and had invited, you know, a number of his sort of management consultant colleagues and a and a former college roommate and you know various uh investor types to come in and try to help him run this shadow task force which was going to bring a sort of um sort of private market management consultant type solutions to this absolutely mind-boggling problem you know catastrophe we were all living through Oh, the the dumbness of that just I can't even anyway <laughs> keep going. it's just so stupid it's so stupid uh Harvard must be so embarrassed by this guy they really should be I don't know how much money his old man gave them but it was not it wasn't worth it for this branded with it forever Harvard here's your guy so he gets these these cronies of his including his college roommate to try to do his free market solutions because uh you know, the capitalist system is better than government, which is the problem, blah, blah, blah. And then what happens? So then I discovered, actually, at the same time that that Trump was saying anyone who wants a test can get a test, and Americans were all desperate for tests, and the White House was, you know, a task force under Kushner was secret, secretly ordering tests from the UAE. In fact, Kushner had brought in... um members of the diagnostic testing industry into a task force in which they secretly cobbled together what would have been a important and good plan to set motion, which was a national testing strategy. You know, there were all kinds of obstacles to setting up a testing strategy. I mean, there were limits on supplies, there were insurance restrictions, there were problems with, you know, none of these diagnostic testing entities were connected to one another. So some were overwhelmed and some were over, some were overwhelmed, some were underwhelmed. And, and this national testing strategy, and I had gotten a copy of the document, the plan would have established something that was critically needed at the time. Uh, I don't know if it would have done it perfectly, but it would have been a place to start. And the members of the diagnostic testing industry, you know, who I was able to connect with, who had worked on the plan, 
thought it was going to go into effect. You know, it, it was appeared to them, they were sort of waiting for the Rose Garden announcement of this plan. And the plan never happened. Announcement never came. Still well, waiting. As one, as one of them put it to me, it went poof into thin air. Yeah. My reporting indicated um, that actually there was this shifting calculus inside the White House at the time. And the shifting calculus was that the pandemic appeared to be mostly impacting blue states. So it was in New York. It was in New Jersey. Um, New York at the time, you know, was getting absolutely clobbered, like a third of the COVID cases that were known in the U.S. were in New York. And so the sort of political calculus was we don't have to stand up a whole national strategy to deal with a couple of these blue states, the virus was maybe on its way out. I mean, you remember all of those. This is yeah. the last surge. It's dying out. By Easter, it'll be fine. It'll be gone, whatever. Right. Yeah. By then, the, the country will really be rocking. And so there was a calculus that um, the governors of the blue states could be blamed and that you didn't have to expend the political capital to set up a giant national testing strategy, which, you know, would have been extremely challenging to do. Yeah. And the governors could be blamed. And then the the part that's complicating things is that in the procurement of, um, you know, the, uh, the, the ventilators and the masks and all the other protective gear that people needed, the states were vying against each other to try to buy the stuff rather than the federal government allocating, you know, Okay, the New York needs it right now. Mississippi, not so much. We're going to do it this way. Um, and Kushner just sort of, as I understand it, uh, sat back and watched them beat the shit out of each other. He just wanted to sit back and let them, you know, duke it out. And I think he had he had some idea of the way the federal government was supposed to um, behave, which dated back to the 1870s or some shit before, you know. Both of the Roosevelts determined that no government shouldn't behave that way. So um, I don't know what classes he was taking at Harvard, but they weren't classes that taught him anything of value. Well, <laughs> let me say this, Greg, which was, you know, there was um, so we reported on a meeting in which a, a, which a group of CEOs and business executives early on had come to the White House and basically said, you know, we want to help and we have canvassed. We have canvassed private industry, and we can we think we can put the following um, supplies and tools and help at your disposal. Um, and they thought that um, there would be, you know, that they were essentially offering this help to support what was going to be a big government plan. But the response that they got from uh, Kushner at that meeting, according to three attendees that we spoke to, was we're going to let the private markets sort this out, mm -hmm. you know, and 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 that was at a moment where literally governors from different states were bidding against each other for the same supplies. So it was clear that, you know, in a market situation where you have a shortage of supplies, the way the free markets sort that out is an, is in a kind of Darwinian, you know, yeah. uh, solution, and which means some people don't get the supplies, and the consequences of that could be deadly. Yeah, 
they're going to price gouge. They're going to gouge the fuck out of it, and that's what they're going to do. They're 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 capitalists and and profiteers, and and that's what they're going to do. Um, it's particularly sad looking back on this now because that's a moment in history where, um, under different leadership, I think the country could have been drawn closer together because of the crisis. You know, in in times of national crisis. Um, those are times when you are politically able to make change in the way that things are. And they just didn't. They just fucked it up. I mean, in every way possible. Um, then the thing that came out recently out of the um, the transcripts from the J6 Commission, of all things, was that during the transition, uh, just to put a bow on our Slenderman Kushner here, they asked him about should we loop in the Biden people about what we're doing with the, you know, about the response stuff? And he said, according to the to the uh, transcript, absolutely not. So, you know, he every at every turn, at every time that Jared Kushner had the ability to do something helpful, he failed to do it. And um, again, not to put too uh, a million Americans are dead. Oh, it's one point one now. Um, and if you go by the math, three hundred thousand at least died unnecessarily that would have survived had had the response been better and i you know i'm going to go to my grave thinking that the, that he and trump are responsible so you know that, let me let me say a word about that which is um this anti-vax sort of lobby mm. is really surging um yeah. i mean that that it, that sort of sentiment is getting platformed uh, at a very high level. And you sort of wonder, as you say, I mean, had there been a bipartisan tone around this pandemic from the beginning? Yeah. You know, could all of this have been changed? Hard to say, you know, but in my most recent piece, like I report on the amazing social cohesion of the pandemic response in Japan, where they're embarrassed to walk around without masks on um, because they are thinking about um, each other's well-being. You know, um, that is the way those masks have been branded and marketed and to the public and uh, and the public widely uses them. And um, the death toll, you know, on a percentage basis has been so much lower over there. So, you know, you look at that and you just wonder what could have been. Yeah. yeah they politicized like right. that. And it and the people, I feel bad for the people that believe them because they don't know any better. They're listening to bad information. And it's like it's the Black Death. And they're like, no, rats are great. Bring rats into your house. More rats are good. You know, it, it, it's it's literally doing the worst possible thing that you can do. Um I want to talk about that piece, but but and, and this kind of comes out of that. But why is our messaging such shit now? I, I feel like it, we haven't the, the anti-vax lobby is out there and it's powerful and it has its draws, but it does not have science working on it on its side. So why can't uh, we get our shit together and, and put out messaging that just make fun of these people for being idiots and kick them back into the dipshit hole where they belong? So. In my reporting for that piece, I mean, I just heard so much about the feeling that there's really not an effective political counter to the anti-vax message. Um, 
maybe partly because people in power do not want to acknowledge it as a political movement, which it is really fast becoming. Uh, but, you know, also because of the the creakiness of our um, sort of public health architecture, like the CDC, which has proven itself to not be nimble in a crisis, mm-hmm. um, you know, and really could not come up with different messages for different audiences, which is really what you need to do. I mean, I spoke with social scientists, including this fascinating woman um, uh, who is an expert in what is called fuzzy trace theory, who who talked about how public health messages stay in the mind and what happens to them. Um, and how people retain them is impacted by their value system and how they trust the messenger or don't trust the messenger um, and what they understand to begin with. So the bottom line is, a one-size-fits-all message is not going to work, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, I interviewed Peter Hotez, who's, you know, who wanted to go to Texas to be an ambassador for the vaccine and to sort of deal, help support the state Texas officials, you know, in countering this, um, you know, and basically told me he didn't really get any uptake from that you know, proposal, you know, just this feeling that like, I mean, I don't know whether it's a like when they go low, we go high problem, um, you know, but you got to get down in there and deal with the information that's being put on the table. Um, And I don't think that that's happening in a systemic way. Yeah. It's also, I feel like the fact that you know, there's new strains and all this stuff. And if you're, I've heard the arguments from people that, well, uh, I was told that uh, if I got the vaccine, I would never get COVID ever. And it's like, no, the purpose of the vaccine is so you don't have to go to the hospital or, you know, fucking die. That's it. You get it, you get sick, but you don't die and you don't go to the hospital and have a ventilator down your throat for two weeks. That's the, that's what the vaccine, I think, is supposed to do. But maybe it wasn't. Maybe the, Maybe it shifts over time. And the idea that, I mean, it could be absolute and they would know every permutation early on is also probably not realistic. So I. I... Well, there was a there was a, you know, what a number of people outlined for me is this critical moment during the Delta wave, which I believe was like July 2021. And that's when people that's when public health officials came to really understand that the vaccines were not preventing transmission. Okay. That they were what they were preventing, which is incredibly important, is severe hospitalization and death. You know, I mean, anybody thinking straight presumably would want to get a vaccine. Right. But but their understanding had shifted. So the question is, how do you message this when you have science and with science, you have shifting understanding? You know, yeah. you don't know everything all at once. You learn it as you go. Um, so how do you reliably impart public health messages when that is a fact? Um, and that has been a real challenge, I think, for our public health agencies. Yeah. It's like, how do you, you know, it, it's a moving uh, target in a sense. Right. Um, but that's how science works. And people should right. be more, you know, willing to understand this. I don't understand how 
you know, if you go back and read about like diphtheria outbreaks in New York City in the 1890s and, and stuff like that before that vaccine came out, it's like, why would you want that? You know, why would you? It's the same principle at work here where you're trying to mitigate uh, mm. severe illness and death. Like that's all anybody's trying to do. So the, the, the argument that um, they want to put a chip in us and da da da, if they're going to put a chip in you, they'll put it in your fucking phone, dude. You know, you have one, you're carrying it around all the time. That's where you're watching the the the, uh, the rumble video about all this stuff. And, they, you know, the government wants to find you. They'll find you. Well, you know, this is, of course, one of the ironies. I mean, there were anti-vaxxers who were arrested in the January 6th, uh, you know, attempted insurrection. You know, those are people who are like, you know, they're putting chips in the vaccine. And, of course, they're walking in to the Capitol with their phones on and being geolocated by the FBI and now they're going to prison. So, you know, I mean, if there's any chip being used against them, it's in the phones that they took into the Capitol. So, yeah, it makes no sense uh, to me. So you wrote a piece called Can America Learn uh, This Pandemic's Lessons Before the Next One Hits? Um, Which was uh, went out on January 17th. And uh, spoiler alert, no. But uh, what what are the lessons? First of all, what should we be doing that we are doing and what should we be doing that we are not doing? Well, um, you know, so the the we kind of broke it down into three core issues that I heard over and over again from a number of people. Uh, We interviewed over 20 public health experts uh, for the piece. Uh, So one is public health messaging. I mean, that is critical. We have a country that is just being absolutely divided over these messages. And we need a much more sophisticated way to explain, you know, mitigation measures, you know, you know, a mask is not an attempt at social control. It's an attempt to basically safeguard you and your loved ones. Um, you know, against an aerosol, aerosolized virus. Yeah. Um. So that was one part of the messaging. Another one, and it surprised me that I heard over and over again, was the need to engage the private sector, the need to bring them to the table. I mean, if you look at, ironically, I mean, one of the great and few successes of the American pandemic response was under Trump. It was Operation Warp Speed, right. which helped develop vaccines in record time. So that was a successful partnership with the private sector. Public health experts like Rick Bright, I mean, just people told me over and over again, you can't just you can't just turn on the private sector like a light switch once crisis hits. You need some sort of mechanism to keep everybody together all along, right? Whether it's a council, an advisory committee, that that should be built into our pandemic preparedness. Um, And lastly, global transparency. You know, how do you get the countries of the world all rowing in the same direction and willing to disclose pathogens of pandemic potential to one another in a super timely fashion. And really, we've never had any kind of treaty that effectively has required that. 
So this pandemic accord um, that is now being deliberated on at the WHO um, would be the first of its kind. Um, and that is critical. And then, of course, you know, from there on in, you could build in all kinds of things like a um, people are talking a lot about a hundred day mission, you know, from the first moment of identifying a novel pathogen, could you have vaccines and treatments ready to go within a hundred days? Uh, and that is the goal that a lot of people now internationally are working towards. It's pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. This is the other, the, the flip side of the anti-vax stuff is the, is the, the fact that we have the technology to do this is just stunning. I mean, it really, like, throughout human history, these plagues happened, and there's not a damn thing anybody could really do about it other than, you know, if you were in London you, and you had the money, you just go to the countryside for a year or whatever right. it was. And, and uh, you know, I think it was, um, it's the city that's called Dubrovnik now. What's it called? I'm trying to remember the name. Ragusa on, on the coast of, uh, of now Croatia was the first place to impose a quarantine ever historically during the black death. That's they invented. That it was the first public health thing. Um, and that's, that's all you could do, but now we have the ability to do these things. So why would anybody, literally anybody not want that to happen? Um, it seems like the appetite for it, uh, should be good because, you know, um, as somebody says in, in your piece, if we have, if we have the, uh, the, the fatality rate or the mortality rate of the first SARS, uh, cov1 and combine it with the transmissibility of the second one uh you know we're in real trouble um because that's when you have the, the the captain trips whatever it is in the stand kind of scenario and, and it's station 11 right. and we're all screwed so um what uh, are the people you talk to are they uh do they think this is going to happen or are they just are do they not think in those terms oh they do i mean most of the experts i spoke to pretty much view SARS-CoV-2 as like a dry run for something worse. Okay. Um, you know, and if you had smallpox, for example, you know, which we have, the government has extensive drills for it, but if you look at what happened with the monkeypox response, you know, which is in the family of viruses, uh, that was not, that was not um, encouraging because the, you know, rollout, of vaccines that um, the U.S. government had invested in was pretty disastrous. So, you know, I think uh, most experts think that something worse is probably coming. Um, so it's this is not, you know, pandemic preparedness is not just about surviving SARS-CoV-2 in an ongoing way. Uh, it is about preparing for what could come next. So what can we do? We normies uh, who are not public health officials and scientists and stuff like that, um, other than like hoard toilet paper and wear masks in, in places where it's obvious to wear masks. Like I wear a mask on a plane because it's, you know, it's safer, but also it's, usually it smells bad on the plane and it's fine. It, it's it's it, totally fine. Um, what can we do? Is there something not obvious that that I'm not thinking of that, that uh, you would recommend? Well, I mean... We all need to think, um, you know, in political terms about who we're electing. I mean, you know, let's say that, um, you know, look look at DeSantis. Yeah. Um, who has pivoted 
to a sort of strangely anti-vax or vaccine skeptic platform when he initially championed the rollout of the COVID vaccines. Remember, remember all of those pictures of senior citizens in their lawn chairs online in Florida yeah. waiting to get vaccinated? So, I mean, you know, will will the, the anti-vax sentiment become a sort of litmus test for a Republican presidential candidate? I think we need to be tracking this in a much more detailed way than we than we have been but also you know i mean look at um you know that the the public health workforce is exhausted our infrastructure yeah. is run down i mean there is not enough funding for this congress has not has not really funded um uh i think the biden i reported the biden administration was asking for 82 billion dollars something like that for its new pandemic preparedness plan and not a dollar of it has gotten funded. So uh, I think we need to really understand preparedness in political terms. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to get people to want to pay for something that hasn't happened yet. I mean, it's, it, it, right. I, I, it, it's hard. Um, there's also the mental health aspect, which people don't talk about nearly enough. I think that the, you know, the, the quarantine and the years after that have done a, a real toll on, on mental health. I mean, if oh, you yeah. look at, at in China where they had the extreme lockdowns for the years, I mean, I'm sure people are, you know, stir crazy beyond belief there. And, uh, I, you know, to some degree it affects every single person in the world, but especially I, in my experience, kids, you know, who lose a year or two of school and everything gets strange and, um, you know, during these very, very formative years. So that's another thing that we have to, that we have to think about in dealing with this. So I don't know, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna hope and pray. I'm gonna let you go because it's been about an hour, but, but, um, so what are you working on next? Are you, do you have another book coming out? Are you going to combine all these things and write a book? Or are you going to write more articles? What are you doing? You know, you I'm, ca- I'm just continuing to report and I will see where that, uh, where that, uh, takes me. Um, you know, obviously COVID, you know, I'm, I'm covering things beyond COVID. Uh, but, but I think it's not done with us. No. And so it is not just a non-story because we decide it is. Yeah. Uh, you can't, uh, head in the sand only goes, you know, only goes so far. Right. So, um, thank you for for all this work that you're doing. I, I really I just think it's so important and I'm so grateful to you for for, you know, putting in the time and energy and, and the uh, relentless determination to tell these stories, because I don't think enough people are. And I think you're doing a, just a terrific job with it. And I, you know, I personally, I appreciate it. I know the listeners do, too. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to come back on. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fawcett. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail.
SW.